<laughs> Welcome to the Avance Podcast. I'm Dan. And I'm Nick. And our guest today is Stephen Smith, and uh, his Porsche shirt is inspiring my Carter Automotive Group tip of the week. Okay. And it uh, turns out Carter is a personal friend of his, so thank you, Wade. Hi, Wade. Hi, Wade. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Wade Wade rocks. Yes, we he agree. Does. He yes. does. He has great taste in cars, too. So uh, there's a little fun story. This is just a real quick, this is less of a tip than it is just a funny story about Porsche. Did you ever wonder why the Porsche 911 was named the 911? Because they they there was a number thing like somebody owned uh, a number that they wanted, didn't they? Yeah. So the back at the time, French, the yeah. silly French, they farted in their general direction, <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, yeah, exactly. So Peugeot had That's the rights was, yeah. to the 901. And it was actually not the uh, they were Porsche was going to call it the 901, and they Peugeot threw up a stink because apparently it was the placement. The number one in the center of three letters was was owned by Porsche, or sort of owned by Peugeot. And no, it, no, P- Peugeot owned the zero as the middle digit. That's what it was. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and so Porsche was like, "Fine, we'll just put in a one." So did they drop that? Because you have cars like the Z06. I mean, that seems like that would be an infraction on Peugeot. That maybe they just three, need to stick to making bicycles. Three letters. Th- Three, oh, three digits, three digits. Yeah. zero. Oh, it has three digits. The okay. middle. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so if anybody middle. asks you, you know, like why I mean, we laugh about like trying to pick your 911 model because there's like how many 911s are there? It's probably like 60 variations of the 911. But anyway, if you want to know. This, dot that. Yeah, dot. yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah. So that's how the 911 came about. I like it. Yeah. Works. So, cool. Anyway, that's a quick Carter Automotive Group tip or fun fact of the week, we should say. But and yeah, now you know. Now you know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Smith, welcome to the show. It has been uh, quite the chore to get you here today. <laughs> took like, this has been our worst starting of any episode we've had in probably 200 episodes. So we blame Adam? We blame, blame Adam. Adam. We blame, blame Adam. Adam. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. Adam's fault. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. He wanted us to be a better podcast and have video and <laughs> be professional. Yeah. <laughs> Two out of those three are happening. Uh, so. <laughs> but thank you for your patience, especially. And uh, your contributions. Oh, good Stop. fun. Good fun. Steven, give us a little bit of background on, on what you do. Uh, you know, I know you have a love of cars and things like that, but you're kind of a designer by heart, correct? Yeah, you know, my, my degree was in what's called industrial design. Most people understand it as, as product design because if you say industrial design, they think you're an HVAC guy who does, you know, duct work in a building and it's like, no, no, yeah, there's an art to that. This. That's a thing too. Yeah. There's true. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying that they, they misunderstand what you are. And it's like, I designed stuff, the stuff that you use every day, um, things, objects, uh, other famous product designers, industrial designers, you know, um, Raymond Lowy, you know, Ferdinand Porsche. Um, so yeah, we, we, we design stuff. I love how understated you are in all this conversation yeah. right now. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing in my head. I'm like stuff. You're like literally the <laughs> grandfather of the, the dad shoe for one. Yeah. That, that's what they labeled me, which is kind of, which is pretty cool actually. Well, I always, you know, I always laugh because you know, they, the, the people who see me now, they call me the godfather of dad shoes, blah, 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 blah. Is that and something you like, want to be called? I guess we could have started yeah, there. We probably should. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's fine. And in the end, it turned out to be um, actually, a, 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 it's, it's a pretty cool moniker to have. Uh, but it, when they first did this article, it was when um, 
sneakers and dad shoes in particular were becoming very popular. Uh, and, you know, I thought they were slagging me off. Like, dad shoes? What the? Yeezys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, the thing, the thing they always forget is they see this guy, you know, the late 50s designer. But, you know, people don't understand that, like, that guy, that's who designed all the New Balance shoes. Oh, you've got to send us this photo. I have to post shoes. this photo as, like, the icon for like the a, show. like a Mad Max slash, like, 80s sunglasses? Is that what you had on there? Like the... Yeah, kind of. They're, they're just the bar. Yeah. I lost yeah. them somewhere around Rutgers University at a concert <laughs> at, a bar, at a bar room. It's a very precise. You know exactly where you left them. That's, I, I mean, know exactly where they were. I was in driving my brother's 78 International Scout, and uh, they fell out somewhere on the sidewalk and i lost him i was Somebody. pissed i remember I like was it years. in the early 80s like pizza hut you could get those there was some oh, new, yeah. new movie promotion it was uh, they had a bunch back of back to the future 2 promotion there you go yeah, yeah. so okay i mean what what made you want to go do that go to, to go to school to design that were you always out there saying I, I think i can make products better i mean yeah you know uh growing up i was the youngest of four and my my brother with the oldest he and his friends would smash all my toys and my stuff and so i had to figure out how to fix them if i could so i started to learn how things were put together and uh you know at the time you're pissed like shitheads are wrecking all my toys mom <laughs> but if they never wrecked all my toys i never would have been curious enough to figure out how they were made to see if i could fix them or put them back together you hear that david and, that goes out to my brother because i did that to him a lot he brought it up <laughs> several times yeah, and so and then I, I I'm an only my, child. I had to break my own toys. So both of you just <laughs> screw off. So yeah. having fights with yourself in the, the mirror. Um, yeah. Yeah. Still does. The, uh, Still does. Yeah. And then my my grandfather was uh, he wanted to be a surgeon, but his family were very poor, and so he went to go off and become a detail finish carpenter. So it was very surgical like precision work. Um, and then he taught me a lot of uh, precision hand skills and making things and woodworking and 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 I like to make things. Uh, yeah. So, kind of kind of the that 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 was the origin of it. And then I loved I loved machines, power tools, cars, motorcycles, guns, anything. Um, growing up, I had dirt bikes uh, and. You just bonded yeah, with I, Dan I, instantaneously. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, I wanted to see how they, you know, I wanted to fix them myself, you know, and, I, and, and pre, pre-dirt bikes, I had BMX bikes, and I became the kid in the neighborhood everybody came to to get their bikes fixed. Like, oh, go see Steven, he's got all the tools, and he can fix just about anything. So I was fixing everybody's bikes, and then, it, you know, then it evolved into things with motors on it and fixing my dad's lawnmower, and, and um yeah, so I was fascinated with machinery and stuff, and I wanted to go be an uh, automotive designer. Um, and then growing up in, in, in Massachusetts, you really didn't understand that there were only two places you go to become a car designer, Art Center in Pasadena or Center for Creative Studies in Detroit, and those were the only two schools that they hired people from to design automotive. And I didn't even know they existed. I went to my high school guidance counselor and was like, hey, um, I want to do this thing called product design. And he's like, oh, engineering. I said, I don't know. Is that what it's called? So sure. <laughs> yes. He signed me up to 
apply to Boston University School of Engineering, which at, at the time was kind of difficult to get in. So I was kind of shocked that I got accepted because it was like, then I looked into it. I'm like, wait a minute, this is math and shit. I like to draw, you know. And, <laughs> Excuse and me, I don't things. think I'm in the right room. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like that. And so I went and talked to my art teacher and she's like, no, no, no. What you want is called, you know, industrial design. There's RISD and MassArt in Boston that, that teach that. And I'm like, oh, thank God, thank you for saving me. I thought I was going to sit there and do math and formulas. I almost and all got the, the wrong degree. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I almost failed out of engineering school because yeah. it wasn't really what I was wanting to do. That's fair. And so, anyway, I went to Mass College of Art, and it was a very small program, and um, they taught us to design stuff. And where they geared your cur curriculum towards was medical devices, uh, early computer companies, Wang, Digital, Data General, to companies that were located around there. And that was the Massachusetts miracle at the time with all of the early days of computers and high tech and MIT. And so I learned how to, how to design interesting laboratory equipment and consumer products. Uh, but simultaneously, I also you know, I always laugh. Anyone's old enough to remember Married with Children with Al Bundy. And it's like, really? yeah, um, I ran high school track. And, uh, you know, then I went to art school where there were no sports. So that was, I still ran, you know, late in the middle of the night. I would go for 10 mile runs at like two in the morning by myself. Um, and so I ran and I wore New Balances. And so when I graduated from school, I heard New Balance was looking for one of the first actual full-time designers they were ever going to hire. And I'm like, people design sneakers? You know, that'd be be kind of interesting. You know, it's 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 transportation. It's not a car, but it, it'd be kind of interesting. You know, and I could design something that I myself could use. And it was almost goes back to those like busted toys trying to fix it. I could run in the running shoes and then figure out how to make them better. Because I was always driven not just new and different, but new and better. I always wanted to make it better. And so I went there and interviewed, and, and it was Reagan era, Wall Street, you know, everybody wearing ties and button-down suits and Brooks Brothers. And and uh, I went there, and it was in a ratty old mill, and we were in T-shirts and jeans. And I'm like, yeah, I like this place. This is, this is my kind of <laughs> thing. people, you know? yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> And then, so I interviewed and they're like, all right, uh, oh, it's 1130, interview's over, we're all going running. And I'm like, what? They're like, everybody goes running at lunch. And I'm like, where do I sign? Yeah. You know? Can I borrow and a pair like, of no. shoes? Uh, hold on, <laughs> yeah, yeah, hold yeah. on, we haven't hired you yet. Like, okay, okay, cool. So it was really far from my parents' house, you know, because I lived at home. It was like a 70-mile one-way commute to go there. And... Um, they called me and offered me the job the next day. And I was like, I'm doing it, you know, but I had a hella commute. I mean, I spent so much time in my car going back and forth every day, but it was worth it. It was my entry into this. And um, it, at the time, New Balance was very small. And Kevin Brown, who was the first full-time designer they ever hired, he was only there a year before me. And uh, he liked uh, court sports. So he did primarily tennis and, and basketball and women's fitness. And I ended up doing uh, a lot of the running shoes and some basketball and then some weird European orienteering and fell running and soccer shoes. Um, 
so yeah, it's it's in those early days where um, I did all of those big New Balance shoes as this young kid or at school, and so they went on to become these these iconic product. And I, I never sat down, you know, I was a twenty one year old kid. Is I'm going to design this sneaker that's going to be around forever, <laughs> celebrated as this you know, breakthrough, blah, blah, blah. It's like, all right, what's next? Let me design the, oh, oh, that's now, all right, we'll do this 997 next. That's a good one. Oh, have 1500, oh, that'll be a good one. And so you just kind of worked on the next one and you're like, you were driven. Okay, when I do the next one, there's things and compromises that were done and made. I can make it better in the next one. And so that, again, drove how I work and how my brain works and how I process these projects. And so in the end, I ended up doing all of these shoes that New Balance today sells more of than they did when they were new, you know, like 996, 997, 1500, 574, 676, 677. I mean, the numbers just boggle the mind. Um, And as of late, their latest retro style they dropped is this 550 basketball shoe that I designed and it's now considered in the market to be overtaking the Air Force One at this year this year wow in, in relevance and I'm like wow you know but again it, it was that goofy 21 year old kid not the dad that I am now do, do you think um, that, that if you oh, didn't have the experience in running that I mean obviously they taught you in design school did they teach you about how to actually put because you weren't just when we think of somebody that designs a shoe sometimes we think of it aesthetically you don't think of the the comfort levels and things like that and and, and how it supports you and things of yeah, that types nature. of rubber materials yeah, the, mecha- the mechanics that, yeah that's the word I'm looking for yeah. to me you know and and this is what people forget these kids forget you know 38 years ago this wasn't a career. It didn't exist. Some of us who did it in those early days, we defined what this is as a job and a career. Like it was done by pattern makers or shoe, you know, shoemakers and cobblers in the past. It wasn't really done by designers. It was new for us to get to get involved in this aspect of it. Um, so what what we did define that as as a career, which is kind of cool because all these kids want to do it now because it looks cool and because we made it look cool because it would, you know, otherwise you'd be like, shoot me now, I'm drawing another freaking sneaker. <laughs> um, but the challenge was to to make it more interesting and better e- each time. And um, it, it turned out that that was the right mentality and, and the mindset. And some guys I worked with there at, at New Balance later left and went to to Reebok and they wanted to start up this whole new advanced concepts innovation team at Reebok um, that didn't exist before and the, the guy I worked with at New Balance was like I know the perfect designer for this um, and that then they recruited me and I went back home to Massachusetts and and worked at Reebok as their uh, advanced design director and the way I approach these things again it's it's um, it's different than other people who would look at it as oh you're a stylist and you move lines around and it's like I looked at it as it was a machine it was a machine for running a machine for sport because I loved machines and mechanisms and 
how can I make it a better performing machine? And how can I make athletes perform better through what I create? Um, and that kind of became one of my specialties was building better stuff as opposed to just new and different. It was new and better. And so that also drove the aesthetic and the things that I was interested in my personal life then influenced exactly what I worked on. So, you know, I've got a 356. I love Porsches. And just the Porsche mindset was very similar to mine with incremental, always improving, but incremental improvements. You don't reinvent the the Porsche. It's You see it immediately from the first 356 prototype from Porsche number one to the ones you can go buy today. You see it, you immediately know what it is from what they've defined through performance that then has defined the aesthetic of what is a Porsche. Yeah, they live um, up to the hype. <laughs> yeah, you see it and you immediately know brand-wise that's a Porsche, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask you about and, the Reebok. It was the it wasn't the pump itself that you invented. It was the, that was the fury. Is that what it's called? Yeah. You know, um, and again, if, if you yeah. look at the furies, the fury it looks, was, it looks like it's missing something in the middle there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. That's the one thing people zoom in on, but it was just, it wasn't, I, I didn't design it to be laceless. I designed it to be a pump system. If that makes sense. Yeah. And just by default, you didn't need laces anymore, so we took them out. The air bladder that holds your feet in, correct? Yeah, yeah. and these... Uh, the thing that's interesting about this this particular product is at the time we were doing it, everybody went to the same old shoe factories, and, and everybody made their shoes there. So you'd go to the factory in Korea, and there'd be one side of the building that was making Nikes, and then mm -hmm. the middle side that was kind of obscured a little bit they were making Reeboks and then down the hall was the guys making Adidas and it was all the same factory um, making the stuff but everybody's you know proprietary ideas but you could you could go snoop around and do some espionage and figure out like, what Nike's got <laughs> sneaker espionage yes okay well, I mean only, only so many people have the tooling at the time right <laughs> to create yeah. the shoes the way like that yeah and so the thing that this was such a breakthrough for that people don't even realize is first of all it's a machine i, I built a very bauhaus germanic like machine for running there's not a piece on this that you can take off and the shoe will still work um we had gone outside the footwear factories and this was kind of a first we went to aerospace companies formula one factories um, the pump system was actually made at a place that made life vests and, and uh, medical medical cuffs and things like that. that makes sense. Yeah. I remember them, I remember them in the basketball shoes more than anything growing oh, up. Oh yeah, a kid. the yeah. first the first one with Pump One. Yeah, I yeah. got there just as Pump One was about getting ready to launch. I did I some troubleshooting on the system <clears throat> again because of my background of this idea of improving and making better. They were running into some issues. <clears throat> so I was able to work on on building that thing better, uh, which, again, what drives me. But the thing with the Pump 1, right, is we made a basketball shoe, and then we stuffed that thing inside of it. Whereas this thing, we're like, why are we pulling this pump and then building a shoe around it? Why don't we make it the shoe? So we kind of 
took it away and stuck it onto a midsole and were like, that's the vision, you know, of this thing. And so basically, again, we went outside the shoe factories to make this thing. Um, the carbon fiber piece, the guys I worked with on the carbon fiber piece, those were guys who worked in the skunk works, who worked on the SR-71s. It was really cool <laughs> hanging with these guys, you know, like, ah, we made the SR-71. I'm like, oh, yeah, I make running shoes. Those guys have some crazy stories, and, by the way. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was so cool to to work with those guys. Yeah. And they're like, now, what are we making? And like this kind of <laughs> potato chip thing, you know. <laughs> and when we first went to some uh, one of the other aerospace companies, these guys made planes you know, fighter planes, F-15s, F-16s. And um, <clears throat> they're like, we, we, we want you to make this this piece. And they're like, come on, dudes, we make whole planes. We're not going to make this Pringles chip for you. And like, well, how many planes do you make? And they're like, you know, 30. And like, well, what if you made 300,000 of these or 3 million of these, you know? You're making the same part. Think of economies of scale and profitability. And like, nah, we're good with our government contracts, right? <laughs> so okay. we went to these other these other guys, and again, you know, they worked on SR-71s. They made helicopter blades with Sikorsky, um, and they're like, yeah, we'll we'll take a shot at it. Um, we'll 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 make that for you. And so within six months of us working on this thing, the military industrial complex had like imploded and all of a sudden these guys making their 30 planes a year were knocking on our door like oh we'll make that potato chip for you now like, yeah how many potato chips would you like sir yeah. found someone else sucks to be you you know <laughs> you had your chance to take the risk with us and they didn't and then the other company that ended up making these for us we we s pulled them out of bankruptcy they were teetering on bankruptcy and we we saved the company which was really cool um but we didn't you know we didn't know they were um r running lean but we saved the company and then the other guys who made these this was made in western massachusetts these were made in in Kemro, california um the hexalite which is the cushioning piece that's in the heel here that's a honeycomb structure yep, i remember that well that, that was made in, in California. What year did so these come out, out of curiosity? 94, 94 it was launched. Okay. Yeah, just I going into high school. I was trying to figure it out. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I started sketching it in late 91. Okay. Um, but it took us that long to figure out how to get it all to work. Because, I mean, you make an assumption of what this, this shape should be to hold your foot. And it inflates and then it doesn't really hold it where you need it to. So there was lots of tweaking and fine tuning and adjusting. And um, it was also the first one we used with the Instaflate, which was a CO2 inflator uh, oh, yeah. to instantly inflate the thing rather than, and you still had the onboard pump, but the inflator was really cool because it's just like, psh, and the thing fit you. Um, and so that, that came from, we went to Interbike, which was the big bicycle trade show, and we saw these guys who had this thing called Superflate, so you could fix up your mountain bike on the trail, and we're like... Those. Yeah, I had, these, I had those from my dirt bike. Yep. Back yeah, and so we worked with those guys to build our own special version for this, huh. which was really cool, you know, and we were so, we were pretty high, 
a point of the spear on cutting edge on on what was going on right then because it was a big battle between us and nike you know once pump the original pump basketball shoe launched um we passed nike briefly as number one which people people forget but then we kind of you know we went astray and lost our way corporately not not our particular group um and the, the other the other thing that this this model represented was a very Bauhaus way of thinking of parts reduction because they were like <coughs> you know with the pump and the carbon fiber like using all these expensive components you know things going to cost a fortune and so when you look at a traditional sneaker there's around a hundred components to make it to make it up with all reinforcers and the laces and things to protect around the laces and to stop the material for pulling and and other other things and basically what we did you know if you look at this thing and you push down the, the tongue piece and the pump system is essentially the shoe you know even you you push this down it's it's the bladder is the shoe and the rest of it is just there as comfort features um and we reduced it down to like 25 components from about 100 components. So now by that reduction of actual components, you could trade apples for apples on the cost of it. So you're now buying one quarter of the material for the same price, but now you can upgrade all the materials that you use so it came out as a traditionally priced sneaker with all of these crazy you know high-tech industrial materials so it was really cool and then it you know it really scared people which i knew i was onto something when the design scares people you know you know it's right yeah and um boy is that so gonna play came, out later is that foreshadowing yep <laughs> yeah and so then it then it came out and uh ended up in the London Design Museum for alternative weird materials. It was in it's in the Smithsonian. Uh, it it just became this this groundbreaking design. And so like, I was like, all right, I did my job. Um, <laughs> Check. Yeah. And then you did it well enough that uh, you were stolen away by Nike after that, right? Well, actually I left Reebok cuz it was getting stupid and uh, <laughs> corporate issues. I went, yeah. I went to Fila. Oh, that's oh, right. That's right. I knew. Yeah. Fila is who moved me out here to the West Coast. And then Fila was imploding. <laughs> and they wanted us to move to Italy, which everybody goes, oh, that would be so romantic and great to move to Italy. Not really in Milan, Torino area where they were, because all of a sudden you've now relocated and the company is still not doing well and you are out of a job in Italy <laughs> oh, as opposed yeah. to being a job here where, you know, the, uh, the majority of the companies are based. And so I strung out Fila as long as I could until I could get into Nike. <laughs> and then I ended up at, at Nike and I was there for 10 and a half years. Um, where I did all kinds of crazy running stuff and technologies and air units and track spikes. and um, Is that what made you, know, you, brought you to the Portland area? Yeah, uh, Fila brought me to Portland because they had okay. a small office. They, they were based all over the place. They were based in Italy. They had an office in Baltimore. 
They had an office in New York City, and then they had an office in, in Massachusetts. So I actually started at the office in Massachusetts, and then they opened a small one in here in Portland uh, to try and steal Nike people away. I, there, I was going to say there had to be some strategy yeah, there. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they they stole a bunch of Nike people, and then the Nike people were like, you think more like us rather than New York City fashion people. Um that's affiliated with Fila through the apparel side. Why don't you come out here and work on our team with us? And so that's that's how I moved out here. Hmm. Um, and I stayed. It's a nice but area. Nike, <coughs> I'm going to grab a cough drop. Yeah, no problem. But we know you're re- recovering. <laughs> Nike, Nike was fun for a while. You know, it had its moments. Uh, I did some pretty wild product there. I had some great successes, but... You know, like a lot of places, I don't, I don't tolerate fools. I don't tolerate politics. Um, I'm hired a designer. I wasn't elected as a politician, and uh, you know whether you like me or not, I, I don't really care. That's a difficult uh, balance in Portland, just saying, or Seattle for that matter. Yeah, but you know, even in in the corporate the corporate environment. Yeah, you know, I know it, it crosses over a lot there, just due to the area demographics. There's so much diversity here in in, in yeah, politics. And, and, yeah. You know, too many people are, are busy all day climbing the ladder and sucking up. And I was busy making cool shit, <laughs> you know, and that's all I cared about. You know, I, I would have worked at Nike forever in the same old job. You know, I had I, I, so many other people were just motivated to climb the ladder, make more money, do this and do that. Like, I'm happy designing cool shit. And that's all <laughs> I want to do. And they're like, don't you want to go to the next rung? And don't you want to be a director? I'm like, no. 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 I want to do <laughs> I what, love what I do. Yeah. 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 I want to make enough money to buy, drive me. cool cars. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I want, to, I want to do what you hired me to do, which was design cool shit. You didn't design, you know, you didn't hire me to sit in a meeting room and listen to everybody else talk about how smart they are and how great they are and how they should be elevated <laughs> to this position to that position. You're wasting my time and your money. Yeah. I could be designing really good stuff. Yeah. And so um, in the end, it it blindsided me because they're like, well, you know, you haven't moved up in a few years. And I'm like, I don't want to. I'm <laughs> like, well, that's a problem, you know. And uh, well, But you didn't want to move up? You just wanted to do what they they paid you to do? Exactly. That oh. was a problem. You didn't want to play, pay the plate? Play, I've seen that play out like that before, which is disappointing because there's a lot of people who really love that. Like, I, especially I think people in, in crafts, um, Woodworking, yeah, mechanics, yeah. things like they were engineers where they love building something. They don't want to go manage a bunch of engineers. They liked being that contributor and having the working with their hands and seeing that product that they made. Like, yeah, it's and I, a lot of the people that rose up to those positions were spent burnout designers, and I wasn't done. Yeah, you know, they were clearly content not. to be that. Like, whoo, yeah, God, the pressure's not on to design the next great thing, and I'm like, well, why are you? A designer, then get the hell out. <laughs> you know. Did you have an opportunity while at Nike? I know a lot of times, you know, you see, you know, where where Jordan's in there designing with his shoes, and I'm not talking about meeting the athletes, but where somebody comes in and goes, "This is what I want on my signature shoe," and you're going, "But that's not going to work like that." Uh, aesthetically great, but that's it, it's going to it's not going to be comfortable, kind of thing. You know, of most of the runners, I mean, they they had egos when yeah. it came to to running and that, but. Yes. When it came to product, they were kind of clear on what they wanted, 
but humble in that they knew that you were the expert in what you were creating for them. Okay. Um, That's nice to hear. And then the one, yeah, I mean, the ones that I design, Paula Radcliffe breaks the women's world record in half marathon and marathon in. She's like, hmm. Stephen kind of knows what he's doing. I'll listen to him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, Sean Crawford and uh, I've got one of the spikes I did that he ended up wearing and getting the gold medal in the Olympics and sprint. And I'm like, he's like, I'll wear anything, man. And I'm like, I don't want to fuck up your Olympics. <laughs> you know, he goes, you will I'll wear blame it, me. Wear yeah. yeah. For four years. Yeah. Four years. I fuck up your career. No, 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 and, thank um, you. He's like, I'll try it. I'm like, okay, you know, if you're willing to accept it, you try it. And dude wears it and wins the gold medal. And I'm like, four more years. <laughs> Unpucker <laughs> effect. Yeah. 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 All right. So let's talk about the transition to Adidas and then the pretty life-changing events that have come from that. I mean, you've had a lot of life-changing events, but this is another one that I think what most of our younger listeners are going to be more familiar with. Yeah, so I got fired from Nike. You didn't want to go be manage somebody. I mean, God, where's your right. aspiration, sir? That's funny. Yeah. And um, you know, the guy I work with now, Yay, loves to tell people that. Can you believe they fired him? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, 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 they did. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we don't need to say fun. it over and over again. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They did, dumbasses. Dumb. <laughs> there it is. Um, I yeah. love that you can say it. <laughs> Spam call. Ah, it's okay. Um. So, Spam call. Then I call. left. Yeah. And I went to. Uh, <coughs> so then I went to Adidas. My two of the friends, two of the friends I worked with at Fila, actually left Fila and went and started the innovation group at Adidas. And so they were like, anytime you need it, we're here for you. And so 10 and a half years later, <laughs> they were, I was like, hey, uh, yeah, yeah, hi, yeah. Like, yeah, come on over. <laughs> so there I went and I did apparel and electronics design, which was kind of cool because it's it, it brings me all the way back to the tech that I was actually trained to design in college. So I did all of these real-time uh, monitoring devices for athletes tied into soft circuitry embedded and uh, woven electronics into the garments that did real-time biomonitoring of cool. uh, the soccer players for FIFA and um, MLS. So it was really cool. So I got to build all these electronic devices and, and uh, transmitter units and computer housings and antennas and then actually apparel so it was kind of fun it was a it was a whole different learning curve and then uh after a couple of years adidas had a hiring freeze in germany but they decided they wanted two electrical engineers so they stole my headcount to germany <clears throat> without me and i'm like um so what is what, what does that mean for, for my job and like, <laughs> where am i supposed hmm, to go <laughs> yeah yeah Supposed to find one inside somewhere. Good luck. Oh, okay. And uh, I was like, "That's not cool." So, like, I liked this before. <laughs> yeah. So I I left there and then I went to Keen, and uh -huh. uh, just before <coughs> I started at Keen, I did a two month stint at North Face, doing their. You know, I was lead lead for running for North Face and. Uh, 
they really didn't know what they wanted to do. So I, I, after two months, I was like, yeah, this isn't it. And in the meantime, Keen had been talking to me and I went there as innovation director. So they wanted to make things in the US and I'm like, cool, you're speaking my language. I love that. You know, they had a small factory here in, in Portland on Swan Island where they just injected shoes. They didn't actually do the full manufacturing. And I'm like, okay, here's an opportunity. I will grow this manufacturing to be true 100% made in US. And, and so that became my goal there. And I was there for two and a half years. And the owner, he's still a good friend. He's a Volkswagen guy. He was actually in, in college. He was a um, Porsche and Volkswagen mechanic at John Mozart's uh, dealership. If you know Mozart yeah. down in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, wor he worked there. Um, but he and I had a disagreement on what innovation was. And uh, I literally, I, I, I walked out of a meeting and quit. And I, I went home and my wife's like, um, how was work? Stop <laughs> quitting things. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, well. Funny story. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, funny story. I, I, I I'll be home tomorrow <laughs> and the day after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And she was like, what are you going to do? You know, you got a family and all that. I said, I, honestly, I don't know. I said, but I can't, I can't do that because that's not what I signed up for. And, uh, and oddly enough, you know, the, the owner and I are still good friends. One year he rebuilt my transmission and my racing beetle for me for a Christmas present. Which yeah, we got to talk awesome. about that soon too. But, and um, so I really didn't know what I was going to do. I was kind of like, in a dark unknown spot. I'm like, what, you know, the first week went by, Oh, it's great. I don't have to do that. And the second week came and I'm like, uh Oh, I actually, <laughs> I do need a job. <laughs> and it was funny because new balance and Reebok both had gotten word that I was on the loose and, and they had both early on conversation of like, would you come back as the face of history and the design that you've done for us? And, and I said, yeah, I, I said, I'll come back. I don't want to be just a figurehead. I want to design stuff still. You know, that's what keeps me interested and excited. And I'm not, you know, I say I'm not done yet. And, um, Everybody and wanted to move you up the ladder except you. Like, I mean, it's funny. Yeah, it's, it is funny. And, and I feel like as honest as you've been with us, you probably were as honest with them. It's like, this is what I want to do. Don't give me a job where I'm not doing that. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And when I first got to Nike, <coughs> they had a role of advanced doer. There were, two, there were dual paths. You could go into management or be an advanced doer, and you were in the same pay grades and things. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a dual path, and then this went away. And it only became this. And I'm like, well, I'll just stay doing this because this is what I like. But it wasn't acceptable. Um, and so one night on a Monday night, I was home. Like, oh, I should get my portfolio together. And the phone rang. And I looked over and it was a weird New York number. And I'm like, eh, I normally don't answer out-of-state calls. But I'll pick it up for some reason I felt I should pick it up and I picked it up and it, and it was yay. <laughs> and, uh, just random call from Kanye West at the time. Yay. But Kanye yeah. West at the time. Yeah. I'm like, hello, <laughs> Mr. Smith. I was like, yeah, 
And he's like, hi, it's, it's Kanye West. And I'm like, why are you calling me? <laughs> <laughs> of all the wrong numbers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, I know, you know, I know the products that you've done. Uh, I'd love it if you would come design with me. And I was like, oh, how, how interesting. <laughs> I was wondering what I was going to do. <laughs> and um, so we talked and talked and I, you know, we, got, we, we just vibed and connected. And, I, and I'm like, this could actually be really interesting and cool. You know, he just wants me to design stuff. And I just want to design stuff, you know, and it was like the perfect yeah, the that worked out real well. Pair, pairing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for the first year, I couldn't I couldn't talk about what I was doing, where I was going. You know, I would mysteriously just leave town. <clears throat> the only ones who knew what I was doing was obviously Yay and um, my mom and my wife and my brother. And that was it. Those are the only people who knew what I was doing for a job. Did you Did you know of him? I mean, did you understand where he came from and his history and things like that when he called you? Or was it was this something like meeting somebody and learning their whole life and, and then being able to really provide for them? And Yeah, it's kind of like I, I knew of him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I knew. It was hard not be, to. But I mean, there are yeah, people. Yeah. Are, yeah. You know, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Could be controversial. Sure. Um, and. He interested me, you know, from the phone calls. I'm like, this this man is fascinating. And so the more I hung out with him, I realized like he's he's pretty amazing. And he was like, this guy can design stuff for me like nobody else has. And so it was this uh, match made in heaven. And I always told him, I said, dude, you saved me from a dark place. You were the hand of God that reached into the dark and pulled me to the light and um, allowed me to do what I love. And, you know, in one of his songs, one of the lyrics is, you know, I know I'm not going to fail because I've met Kanye West. (laughs) And I, I truly believe there's a magic to him. And I'm eternally grateful to him for sharing that magic with me and empowering me and kind of unleashing me from the corporate world and the corporate structure and the corporate constraints. Like all of a sudden, you were free to think. Uh, well, it sounds like he him. listened to you when you said, I want to design things. And he went, good. I want you to design things. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Let's do it together. Sure. Amazing. And <laughs> it's it's uh it's been an amazing time. It's the best best time of my career. Um it's like being a kid out of college again where you can just dream and build it. And you know, you have the resources and the connections to build just about anything you can dream of. Um and we dream of the things together, which I think is more important because he had these visions of things that he wanted to do and, and build and the corporate world got in his way, enabling him to do these things where he's like, why can't I do this? You know, you're the, one of the biggest companies in the world. Why can't we do it? And when I showed up, I was like, let's, let's do it. Let's try it. You know, and he's like, what? You know, nobody ever says that. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, if you don't take the risk, you've already failed. 
So yeah, I will not fail. I will not fail you. We we'll do this. We'll 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 try it. And he was like, you know, very Yoda like. There is no try, and it's like, well, we do have to try. We 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 attempt, and then we succeed. Um, that's the difference. Other people try and give up and fail, and like I said, you know, my mother used to call our our the boys the thick mix. You know, for the Irish, the Boston Irish, stubborn bastards. Um, <laughs> and, you know, because my dad's side was Irish, and uh, but it, if it wasn't for that stubbornness and the thick mick, as my mother would call us, uh, I wasn't driven to do these things that others can't. I'm like, why should I? Why would I want to do things other people can? That's no fun. Anybody can do it. Yeah. I want to do the shit people can't. You know, that's the challenge. I'm going to design stuff other people told me couldn't be done. You can't do that. I'm like, uh, you know, and, and for, for good or bad, I've been the hold my beer guy in this industry. It's like, <laughs> tell me it can't be done. Oh, yeah, get the fuck out of my way. I'm going to do it. Watch. Get out of the way. And, you know, too many other times, too many other people are in the way. Have, they're scared. They, they're, they're scared. You can't do that. Like if we were to say we were going to take a shoe and have no laces and have carbon fiber piece that we took a third of the weight out of the midsole, people are like, you can't take that arch away. We're like, why not? We're replacing it with this bridge out of carbon fiber from aerospace. Well, it's scary. I'm like, fuck yeah. You should be afraid of it. You know? And um, so, yeah, that's been kind of the story of my career it, it, again, good for good or bad. Cause you know, sometimes you piss people off above you that they can't do it or they're envious of it. You know, even down to working with yay directly, it's like some people are envious of that. They need hierarchy. They need somebody in the middle. And it's like, it's me and him. What do you like? I like that. Let's make it simple, clean, simple, clear. Sure. You've got the mission. Let's go. And other people need to complicate it to have their fingerprint on it. Like, well, what if we went over here and did that? It's like, no, we're going from here to there. I'm like, well, if we went over here and maybe if we tried that, I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going from point A to point B. And I am going to do that. Yeah, the shoes are like a perfect that. representation of his image in my opinion, too. Like, you look at that shoe, and I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense, and I love that. Like, you can see that connection there. I mean, and one thing I've learned from working with a lot of celebrities over the years is you don't know anything about celebrities until you meet them, and even then, they, you know what they want you to know. So I hold any reservations. Yeah. But I love that, like, I don't know, I love that polarizing effect of a shoe like that. It definitely, when I see them, I'm like, yeah, that, that Kanye, that goes right along there. I yeah, I mean, that's what's fun. I'm, I'm with... You know the compliment to what I do, yeah. the risk taker, um, the disruptor. You yeah, know, Nike. They all talked about, oh, let's disruption, disruptive design is what we're about. And then I'd give it to them, and they're like, mm, we really didn't mean too different, it. kind too of disruptive, disruptive. too disruptive, yeah, yeah, yeah. too disruptive. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I, I want to talk a little bit about about your cars, and I want yeah. I want to know what about that bug. I have several questions. I want to know about the bug, and I want to know if you, being the designer that you are, has ever taken anything you owned automotive and gone, I can design that better and done it to your vehicle, kind of thing. Good one. Um. 
I mean, I think aesthetically, if you look at my 356 and together, you know, it's again, I like collaboration. I like to work with the experts and what they are. And, and, you know, I've been fortunate enough up here to, to work alongside Rod Emery and his dad, Gary at Emery Motorsports and building the outlaws. And, you know, we, we took a street 356 and we tweaked and twisted it and built part of Gary's vision into it and part of my vision and part of Rod's vision. And out of it came this pretty unique special 356. And that's what Emery's are great for. You know, Rod and his dad have this amazing designer's eye for what they craft, you know, because other people build outlaws. But I mean, it's similar where you look at an Emery outlaw and you know, you know who built that car. Uh, there's a, there's a, perf- I don't want to say there's a perfection, but there's, <coughs> everything's right about it. Sure. You know, yeah. no matter where you look at it from and other people build outlaws and you look at it, like they, they put one, one too many details in it, or they didn't get to this part and it looks unfinished and re- unresolved. I mean, you look at Emery's designs, they're, they're resolved. And that's how I look at my products and the, the sneakers. They're resolved. You turn it around. You look at it from every angle. It looks good. It looks right. And part of that goes back to those early days at New Balance, working with these pattern makers and these shoemakers. There was an excellence that you created. I mean, you think about it. You know, excellence was expected. It's what it, it's almost like a Porsche mantra. Yeah. Um, and it's how I, I looked at the design of it. So there's a synergy between you know, me owning a, a Porsche and associating with the Emery's as well uh, and learning from them. And and uh, they have they have a designer's eye. They're not trained designers, but you look at it and it's it's it, they've created a masterpiece, a thing of beauty. And I mean, and that's what that's what we try to do with the Yeezy product, too. It's an individual art piece. It's accessible art. And that's kind of what what rod does too you know he you know they're pretty expensive for access to them but um it's 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 an art piece that you can use that's why i loved my 356 it was a piece of art that i could drive and same with the racing beetle yeah, i wanted to ask you all about um, that so you this the racing beetle is a road race beetle yeah it's it's a very special <coughs> unique car and people are like well, it's just a bug. You made a bug into a race car. I'm like, no, I didn't. The original owner made it into a racing beetle the day he bought it in 1965, and somehow it managed to survive. Because I mean, people looked at him as a as a you know it, it was an entry entry level car, commuter and, car kind and, of, yeah. Yeah, but Bill Bill was very uh, Bill Gilbert, the original owner and builder of that car, was very clever in what he did. You know, he was strategic. He was an engineer. And he looked and see sedan and there was nobody in C sedan. So he got a C sedan, he got a beetle and part of racing that in SCCA in the Northwest, when you're the only C sedan, you get first place every time, <laughs> no matter <laughs> what, no competition. You finish, yeah. You know, cause they put all the sedans out together and E modified and B sedan, C sedan, A sedan. Well, the A sedans weren't cause they were big cars, but he raced with Mustangs and Corvettes and all kinds of crazy ass shit. I've seen photos like what the fuck was he doing in there with them? <laughs> Straight um, up Herbie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, totally. But, when he was in a group of all of these other cars, 
and mixed class, you could come in dead last. But if you were the only C sedan, you got first place. <laughs> and so he ended up with all of these first place and points and trophies. And, and uh, you know, eventually he got the car dialed and it handled really well. And he was legitimately winning C sedans unless somebody came with like a ringer or, or a, you know, a super fast mini with the bigger motor in it and stuff. He would get second or third place or first place even. Um, so he had the car pretty developed. And then, um, so it was pretty well known in the Northwest. You know, it raced up in Seattle at Kent. It raced in um, all the way up at Westwood in BC and Canada. He raced, you know, south into Salem and Corvallis down here and PAR, which then was Delta Park. Um, same with Pacific Raceways. It was... SIR, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was SIR. Many changed names a few times. He raced at Shelton. Um, pretty amazing race history this this car had that this guy raced this thing in. And uh, it's, it's kind of fun when you show up at the tracks here in the Northwest and you get some old guys who are like, holy crap, this can't be. Is this the same car that I saw <laughs> racing at, like, the Rose Cup in 1968? Keeps going, like, yep. That's awesome. It is. This is the car. And they're like, that's incredible. I remember being a kid watching this car race, you know. And um, so it was cool to get it back out. But what happened with Bill is, you know, the, the 1970 comes along. They changed the racing regulations and rules. And now all of a sudden you could have aerodynamics and you could modify the car and have disc brakes. And, you know, he was a family guy. He couldn't afford to keep up with these guys. Um, and so there was a local racer, Wynn Casey, and Wynn got a, a beetle that, that was a IRS beetle. And then he had the body acid dipped, put on empty fiberglass bodywork, um, had an 1835 with Weber 48 IDAs, aero, you know, he added aero kits to it and stuff. And Bill's like, I'm out. I can't. I can't compete with this. <laughs> yeah. And so I have to feed my children. Yeah. 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 So 1970 Rose cup was its last <coughs> period race. And he towed it. He towed it behind a Volvo 122 Amazon wagon and he towed it home with the tow bar, pushed it into his barn, flipped up the tow bar. The magnetic towing lights were still on it. He took his suit and his helmet and sat it in the passenger seat jacked the thing up, put it on wooden blocks, and drained the fluids. So it sat like that from 1970 until 1996. Gary Emery saw it in the back of Hot VW's magazine, Road Racing Beetle, you know, um, $3,000 Corvallis. And so Gary was like, what the hell is that? I got to go see this thing. It's not <laughs> far from us in McMinnville. And so he went there, and that's the way it was, just like Bill last raced it. And uh, so Gary ended up buying it from him and taking it out to Emery's Farm in McMinnville, and they, they took it all apart. Classic Gary. He took it all apart and then uh, kind of lost interest in it for a while, and it got spread out. If you've ever been out to their place, they have three or four barns on their property, and the beetle was in every one of them in various <laughs> pieces. <coughs> and... Um, so I bought my 356 when I moved to Oregon, you know, because I grew up on the Rust Belt in the East Coast where you couldn't own cool cars because you just watch them rust away. Um, 
you know, my dad was happy because he got a new car every two years before the floors would rot out from the salt damage. And uh, so I moved out to Oregon. I'm like, there's no salt here. There's lots of old cars. Sweet, I'm getting an old car. So I got a 58 356 Super Coupe. And that was my daily car. And wow. so I bought this thing. That's cool. And uh, I was like, all right, I got this thing. <coughs> I need to figure out, A, where to get worked on, and B, where the <laughs> hell am I going to get parts from the 50s for this thing? And I looked in the back of um, the 356 newsletter, and there was this guy, parts obsolete for Porsche out in McMinnville. And I'm like, oh, he's in Oregon. <laughs> I'll drive out there. <clears throat> And I drove out and, and I met Gary for the first time. And, and Gary was like, that's a pretty little A coupe you got there. And uh, I'm like, yeah, it's not bad. And he goes, got, got B seats in it. You know, and I'm like, oh, okay. I said, you got parts for this thing? <laughs> and uh, he's like, yeah, follow me. And if you've ever been out there, but he had this massive, like 7,000 square foot barn just filled floor to ceiling with everything apart you can imagine, like... <coughs> bodywork every nut bolt screw and because he was the parts manager for chick iverson for years you know he's like what do you need and i'd be like i don't know this screw here uh, 616 35 46 43 4 it's over here in this drawer rain man situation <laughs> yeah. yeah oh yeah. you know because he, he ran the parts department so sure. he knew everything all the part numbers yeah. so i was like well you know I, I love Gary. He's really cool. This guy's, he's, he'll be a good friend. And, um, and so they had Cameron Healy's old number eight, uh, speedster race car. He, he used to race and, um, they had a couple Ted Rogers, uh, number 19, 356, uh, C race car. And, uh, I'm like, what are these? They look like race cars. They're like, yeah. We race. I'm like, oh, cool. And uh, he's like, you ought to take your coupe out there and uh, turn into a race car. I said, that coupe's how I get to work every day, right, at this point in time. And uh, he's like, well, you know, you could you could sell the bumpers off it and uh, get a race motor and put a cage in it and still drive it to work every day. <laughs> Just race it on the weekend. I said, You'll yeah, get to I work faster. It. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, well, if I wreck it, on Sunday, I don't go to work on Monday. Uh, so no. And in the back was the Beetle in pieces. Ah. And I was like, what about that Volkswagen? I said, that's a pretty sweet looking thing. I said, it's got roundels on the side for numbers. I said, is that thing a race car? And Gary was like, yeah. And he goes, that's a special one. And he goes, that's one of the most documented vintage race cars in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm like, really? I said, well, then it should be mine, right? <laughs> and he's, if you want me to come racing. And he's like, well, too bad it's not for sale. And I'm like. <laughs> Just held that bait out in front of you and then pulled it back. Yeah. 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 And I said, well, I'm not going racing with you. And I said, well, no, wait a minute. You said I could sell my bumpers and buy a race motor in a cage? What? How much are my bumpers worth? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's go back here. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, well, those are six-month-only, one-year U.S. bumpers, and he goes, they're probably worth about twelve thousand dollars. I said, oh. interesting. I only, I only paid thirteen for the car. So, <laughs> <laughs> twelve 
12,000 in bumpers. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, now I'm paranoid that someone's going to hit me and wreck these bumpers. Now I don't want to drive it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So yeah. I still drove it. And uh, so every now and then I'd need a part or something. I'd just go out there. I, I like to hang out with them, you know. And, yeah. and Rod was there building race cars. And I'm like, this is cool, watching them restore them. And, you know, my, my mine had a little rust in the passenger floor. I said, hey, at some point, can you do my floors? They're like, yeah, a couple of years. You know, a couple of years, we're, you know, we got a backlog. And I'm like, okay, okay. And uh, you come and racing with us? And I'm like, and I'd like the, selling me that beetle. Yeah, yeah. Selling me the beetle. Yeah. The, the beetle back there. They're like, nope, can't have it. And uh, they weren't working so, on it though, right? You said they, they had parted it out no. and it was just sort of sitting. It was sitting. Yeah. Waiting to waiting, be waiting for you to uh, finally yeah. get yeah, your chance. Yeah. And so for two years, I went back and forth and I'd go out and they're like, you come and racing? And I'd be like, and they're like, nope. <laughs> and. Circular I argument. Finally, yeah. yeah, so I'd finally given up. And the other thing, you know, there was something I always wanted, which was a Vespa GS150, you know, the classic mod, mm-hmm. who, scooter. And I'm like, they're never going to sell me that Beetle. And I said, I'm just going to get a, just go be- get the best GS150 I can find. So there was a guy who had this rare um, Sears Allstate one down in Texas and apparently Sears together with Piaggio did a one time only 25 of these GS 150 mark fours that were labeled with an all state badge on it. And this guy had one of them and they were maybe, you know, at this point in time in the, around 2000 2001 there were like 10 of them left in the world and i'm like that's a pretty cool gs and it was perfect you know and my wife was like you can't buy any projects you gotta you know you're getting it you're getting a perfect one or you're not getting it because i don't want any projects around this house and i'm like okay well that's a good license to get you know spend some money yeah. <laughs> the best one i can get you yeah. told me cheap. i had to get something nice <laughs> yeah and so she's like um, all right. So I sold a couple electric guitars and stuff I had had to get the money. So I had like seven grand and the next, my brother-in-law lives near Fort Worth and that's where this was. And I called him, I said, Hey, if I fly down, um, can you take me to go see the scooter? And then if it's good, can you take me to forward air and we'll put it on a pallet and send it to Oregon? He's like, yeah, sure. No worries. So that, Next day, I was going to call the airline and make my travel plans. Well, that night, the phone rang, and it was Rod. I'm going to go race like, <laughs> Yeah. Hey, um, my dad and I were looking around here, and he's got a lot of projects I don't think he's ever going to get to. And he's like, that bug is one of them. And he's like, there's a line of people 10 deep who want it. Um, but we don't just build cars and sell them like we pick the owners and they're like my dad and i have decided you should have that car um you've got 48 hours to decide i saw be out in the morning with the cash because it was seven grand <laughs> i already decided when yeah. you called him. yeah yeah conveniently sitting right here in yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> funny story exact amount in cash yeah <laughs> 
And so I told my wife, I said, I'm not getting the scooter. I'm going to get the racing beetle. And she's like, I know how bad you want it. Go get it. Aww. So I went out there and, and I paid them and, you know, they made me pretty much verbally agree. You, you have to turn this into a vintage race car, race it with us here in the Northwest um, keep the same level of maniacal documentation that the car had going in its period. Cause Bill had two, three ring binders of every race that car was in every penny he spent in receipts from the cash check. He bought the car with till the last fluids in the can that he bought to drain the fluids into the day he stored it. I mean, it was madness level documentation on this car. And, uh, I said, yeah, yeah. I said, you guys are picking the right guy. You don't understand. Like, I'm, I'm OCD like that. And, um, and so I bought it. And then Rod spent, like, the next six months helping me put it back together nights and weekends and get it racing. And then I had to go get my license and, and classes for racing and all that. And out of it came this, the second life of the Beetle. And, um, you know, because of the maniacal level of documentation that Bill did it people were like, Oh, you just race on a beetle. And you, you know, Gary was like, when you come out with this car, it's going to piss people off. And he's like, they're going to be there with the Ferraris and factory race cars. And they were like, what's this old bug? Do? Why are you racing this old beetle? You know, straight up Herbie goes to Monte Carlo. I'm it just is. saying that. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But he's like, but then you're going to lay out the documentation and he's like, and they're going to shut the fuck up. <laughs> I said, well, if it's going to piss people off. I'm in. Said, I'm in, yeah. That's the car for me. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so we got it out. And um, I started racing it again and racing it a lot. And so it became, you know, it became very popular up in the Northwest. Um, and then when it came to, like, the big leagues of going to Monterey with this thing, I'm like, you know, I'm going to submit it to Monterey. And um, I sent it in and they were like, oh my God, we'd love to have this car. You know, part of it for the freak show factor. Yeah. Like, people are going to be like, I think I just saw a beetle out there. I'm drunk. <laughs> oh, you're, you know? you're talking the, the historic races at, at Laguna, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 The big one. Yeah. That's awesome. And so 2011, it got accepted and I raced it at, at Monterey and people would come through the pits and they'd be like, is this some kind of joke? I'm like, it's no joke, man. This is the real thing. Um, and so I got out there and I raced it there and it was pretty spectacular. I mean, even Leno was up talking about it, you know. It was pretty cool. Um, and ever since, you know, back racing throughout the Northwest again. And, and uh, you know, we've developed the car to be a little bit faster than it was ever meant to be. And it's got a lot of Emory Outlaw tricks done with it. Um and so it's gotten to be a pretty pretty famous car. You know, Greenlight diecast made a diecast of it. It's part of this Volkswagen racing set. And then I find out later, you know, the 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 guys from Heavy Metal Affliction, they're affiliated um, through Microsoft for the Forza game. Yep. Uh, they the, the guy came and saw it and was a, like in disbelief, like this freaking this is Beetle racing, you know, <laughs> and. Um, <clears throat> So unbeknownst to me, they built it in Forza. So you can race my car in Forza. <laughs> That's so cool. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, they did a good job. It looks just like it. And I didn't even know it. One of my friends who's uh, one of my Porsche buddies was like, hey, look, 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 my eight-year-old's racing your car in Forza. I'm like, what? Where did you get it? And he ran it into a wall. <laughs> yeah, like, it's part, of the, it's part of the game. I'm like, wow, that's you, nuts. So you are, how, how often are you still racing the car then now? So I, know I it, mean, I depending on work, um, three to five race weekends a year. I, I try to. Yeah. Still I've been used. trying to do more, um, more fun, weirdo destination ones, you know. Um, Pudding Bay in Ohio, uh, I went and raced at that race, which is really cool. It's on an island in Lake Erie, and you have to take your entire rig over on a ferry uh, to this island, and you race during the week, and you race on an airport, like old school with hay bales and everything. It's pretty spectacular cool. event. That's cool. They were the first ever, like Bizarro World. They put an ad in the vintage racing magazines, like we're looking for Beatles. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> nobody is ever looking for Beatles. <laughs> you know, I got to get this. A lot of looking for Beatles, but they're all just you know classics at this point. You know, it's, it's funny. I'm only in our early 40s, and but man, Beatles were throwaways when we were kids, and now everybody oh, yeah. wants one. Like they're they're the hot thing to have is a vintage Volkswagen. So, well, that's what's so miraculous about this car is the fact that Bill put it away like a time capsule. Yeah. You know, other people who had road raced them, you know, they banged the crap out of them and they disposed them or they, you know, dune buggies were hot. So they yep. cut them up yeah. and made them into a Manx or something else. And they're gone. This car just was a time capsule. I mean, it, it's amazing that it survived. That's cool. Um, and so, you know, and Emery's picked the right person to be the caretaker of it because I keep the same level of documentation. Um, I go race it wherever and whenever I can. Uh, I just went. The bummer is they invited me down for an under two liter Trans Am to uh, Laguna Seca a couple weeks ago, but I, I put a new motor in and it wasn't dialed in right and it just, it sucked. <laughs> and so You got to learn, um, right? I mean. That's the whole process yeah. of it. Figure that out dialing it again. That was an expensive weekend. Yes. <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> but they're having another one later in the year in October, this Velocity Challenge. And uh, it's kind of a big deal for, again, with the Trans Am group. So I'm going to go down for that again, I think. I just sent in my entry for it. Sweet. Uh, and I should have the my other motor dialed for that. Absolutely um, Awesome. Well, we're, we're running to the end of time here, but I really appreciate okay. it. We, I apologize for the, the delays, but I mean, the story you have woven today is incredible. Um, and where you've come from and the things, the, the things that have affected our lives that we didn't even know before we met you, as far as, you know, yeah. having some of those shoes in our, my closet today. Uh, right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's the thing I asked Yay one day. Like, why me? Why did you call me? And he was like, bro. You designed all the shoes I wanted as a kid. And he's like, who wouldn't want that guy designing for him? I said, good point. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that's the important thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely incredible. I want to thank you for doing this yeah. uh, and taking time. Um, and because uh, I know you're busy, obviously. <laughs> and not feeling well. Yeah. So I know you're so, recovering. So yeah. thank you again for that as well. Yeah. I mean, I want to, I want to thank Avance. It's been a great thing. Adam and the, and the crew have done a great job building this uh, hub of car culture. It's pretty amazing. Um, 
that we need more of it. Well, clearly, we agree. There's more. There's <laughs> more coming. Believe yeah, there's me, a there's lot a lot more, more coming. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our listeners, uh, viewers, if you want to go see more of Steven's stuff, you can uh, check him out on Steven Smith on Instagram. Just all one word, Steven Smith, and it's the one little blue check mark because it is official. Uh, Steven, any other yeah. places they should go check stuff out? Um, I think if you just looked up Steven Smith sneakers, you'd find a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah that's an understatement. You know, sometimes you'll find good pictures of the bug there. Okay. Um, if you look up Stephen Smith Racing VW, you never know who, what you'll get, but hopefully it'll be me. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll post some Rob, links to your to your stuff that we find, um, and yeah, we'll get some pictures from you to share. For our, so, I do want to, your vintage picture. I got it to me copy. That was awesome, by the way. Yeah, that's a good one. That's the one we actually paint and put on the Avance uh, Portland T-shirt design. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. very With cool. With my 356, I, I kind of photoshopped it all together and. Nice. built this rather fun one <laughs> excellent well for this episode of the avance podcast as always i'm nick i'm dan and don't just get there enjoy the drive <laughs>